And in this case, it's been the rebellion of his, his son Absalom. Uh, Absalom rebelled and usurped the kingdom from David. David had to flee, but now that's behind him, as if you could ever get over that. David, you have, you have David getting back to doing what a king should do. He's, he's taking on his responsibility again like he should have been doing before this. He's sitting in the gate among the people. He's with the people. He's hearing from them. And he's essentially being welcomed back to Jerusalem. He's on his way back. And in chapter 19, it's really a high note where David is welcomed back. He, he's even essentially welcomed back by people who previously cursed him, who were his enemies. He's welcomed back by people that he was unsure about their loyalty, like Mephibosheth. And, and essentially, this scene in chapter 19 is the return of the king and his restoration. It's really a high note after the really bad stuff that went on with Absalom. And so you read chapter 19, and, and, and essentially you, you get this excited feeling about, man, things are getting back on track for David. Praise God. And, and, and again, it's like a celebration. But then there's this last passage. Look at it. Look at the way the, the chapter essentially of restoration and celebration ends. Look how it concludes. 2 Samuel 19, verse 41. Then all the people of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away? And brought the king and his household over the Jordan, and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have you eaten? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah. We have ten shares in the king and in David. Also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? We are not the first to speak. Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Let's pray together. Lord, we just pray that you would teach us. Pray, God, that you would give us wisdom. Pray, God, now that we would, by the Spirit, recognize the things that are freely given in your word. That, Lord, we would be warned about this tragedy that we see unfolding before us in history and in this chapter. God, that we'd be warned and that we'd be wise, that we'd recognize some of these elements of division in this chapter, and God, we'd seek to avoid them. God, as our Lord Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Lord, we would strive to be peacemakers and not those who would seek to sinfully divide brothers or the people of God, that you would warn us and you'd give us wisdom now by the power of your spirit and change us, God, sanctify us in your word. Your word is truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You think about this context for Israel. David is the greatest king in their history. One of the greatest kings in all of history, King David. And yet, in his reign, and at this time of restoration, there is ungodly division. There's division among brothers. You saw it there numerous times. There's Israel, and there's the men of Judah. Already division among these, essentially, brothers. 
It's a time of great celebration. And this great celebration in this chapter is marred by strife. David is, a, is this unifying figure. If ever there was a unifying figure in the history of Israel, David has got to be one of the greatest. And yet even during his reign and his rule, look what happens with the people. David himself is this man of great accomplishment. He is, he is a man of deep spiritual conviction. You think about all the inspired literature in Scripture, all of the Psalms that David wrote, how David has been used in so many ways to encourage God's people generation after generation. And in fact, if you take the Old Testament, and, and if you look at the Old Testament and try to figure out, okay, who are kind of like the major players in the Old Testament? You'll probably come to the conclusion, well, Abraham and Moses and David. And about David, there is way more information than the previous two. And yet, during his reign, look at what you see. Look at what you see. You see strife. The reality is strife, division, contention among the people of God is just a sad part of our history. It happened in the first church. The church were the apostles. The apostles are active and leading the church in Jerusalem. And it didn't take long. I mean, these amazing things. I mean, the power of the Spirit of God at work, the preaching of the Word of God by the greatest preachers ever who knew Jesus Christ personally. And look what happens in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. doesn't take long for division to enter in. Then you have the church of Corinth, a church we know a good bit about. There's two letters in the, the, the Scripture to the church of Corinth. And we see that this is a church that was begun by the Apostle Paul. I think I used that word wrong. <laughs> the Apostle Paul began the church of Corinth. He, he led in its founding by preaching the gospel. He writes them letter after letter. We have two of them in, in the Scripture, and it's a church rife with division. And by the time you get to 2 Corinthians, it is splintering, full of false teachers. A church began by the Apostle Paul. And it's not only them. Look at what Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 5. And by the way, Galatians is written to a group of churches in this geographic area called Galatia. Listen to what he says to them. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Incidentally, there's a good foil to division. Through love serve one another. Verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It's in the, it's in, it's in the kingdom of David. It's in the early church. It's just a sad reality of our history as the people of God. There's always danger for division among us. So I just tonight want to highlight this passage, what it says. And, and I want us to look at this passage, and I'm going to try to point out what I think are some of the factors that we see here that led to this kind of division so that we can learn from this and avoid this kind of strife. One of the things Paul says to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is that he's writing that there should not be any divisions among you. 
That's the ideal. And that's what we should strive for. And here we have, during the reign of the greatest earthly king other than Jesus Christ, here you have division in his rule. A lot to learn here tonight. Well, first of all, it begins with accusation. So this is an anatomy of division. It's not the anatomy. There's a lot of ways division comes in. This is just some of the ways division enters in. And this is division among brothers. That's what we have here. So, so when we're talking about division here, I'm trying to apply it to us as Christians and the kind of division that we are in danger of experiencing among brothers. So obviously I recognize there is going to be division with the world. We're talking here about division among brothers because that's what you see in this passage. There's accusation in verse 41. Then the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all of David's men with him? You can read about that in chapter 19. That's the celebration. David's coming back. It's a, it's a euphoric time. But these men of Israel, essentially representing ten tribes, they come to the king and say to him, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away? This is an accusation. This is where when we think about division, it might be good to begin with a question rather than an accusation. Because one of the other things we see here in this passage is there's misunderstanding. These people are not rightly understanding what took place in chapter 19. Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, so notice this language of division from this other tribe, stolen you away. Now read chapter 19 and see if you can find that. Read the events that surround what we're talking about here. This is not what's happened. There is a misunderstanding here, and this misunderstanding has led to this kind of division. This is a, a good thing to consider when we're thinking about or when we're tempted to divide with people. Do you really know the facts? Is what you're thinking, is what you're doing really in accord with what is true and what is correct? Because it's not in this case. This was not some conspiracy by Judah to steal away the king. So you have an accusation, you have misunderstanding, and not only that, but you have a negative and distorted perception. They say, the, the men of Judah have stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all of David's men with him. Incidentally, if you read the chapter, it's not only the men of Judah, it's also Benjamin, which was Saul's family. So they're inaccurate. But notice how, again, they, they phrase it, stolen you away. Oftentimes with division, there is a negative and a distorted perception. And there is poisonous and corrupting language that enters in. That is essentially just not true. To beware of these things. Then beginning in verse 42, we see the men of Judah give their answer. All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel. And, and notice just the, the picture there of division. The men of Israel, the men of Judah. Verse 42. Here's their explanation. Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Which is another aspect of division oftentimes is anger. Anger. This is one of the ways it's expressed. Is this really something to be angry about? Anger is a, is a dangerous emotion. It's appropriate and not sinful at times. In fact, it's encouraged at times. Be angry, but do not sin. 
There are some things that should make us angry. But my goodness, you've got to be careful with this emotion probably at least as much as with any other. Because isn't it so easy to lose control when you're angry and say things you shouldn't say and say things that are just not wise? It's it's an element in division. It's something we've got to be careful about. And again, all the more careful when you're, you want to live righteously and you, you recognize there's a place for righteous anger and that's what you want to have. It can almost become a virtue of being righteously angry. You better be careful with anger. A lot of bad stuff follows in its trail, as probably all of us have experienced as sinners. But that's, one of, that's part of this anatomy here is anger. So these men of Judah give this explanation. The kings are relative. That makes sense. That's why they brought him over. And then look, look at what they say. And, and I think you can read in some of the inference of these other men, the men of Israel, in this answer. Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Essentially, has the king paid for us to get something that you didn't get? Or has he given us any gift? This, this charge, essentially, they're answering here the charge of favoritism which is also oftentimes an element of division. Favoritism, the the charge that you're receiving special benefits, that you've been extended special rights, which actually wouldn't be that unusual since they're his relatives and his family, but they say they didn't receive any of that. They answer this charge of favoritism. And we've got to be careful about that in the church, especially leaders in the church. Have to be really careful and cautious not to show partiality, not to exercise favoritism. I think this, this answer also indicates there's probably a bit of jealousy behind this, that the people, the men of Israel, these ten tribes, are jealous of the, the people of Judah. Seems to be jealousy. Jealousy is essentially this, this resentment, this resentment of another person, or in this case, a people, because of some privilege or success they've had. And we've got to be careful of je- jealousy so often leads to division. We have, this, we have this, this, these media outlets in our day and time which, which essentially can feed jealousy like Facebook. There's a lot of people that, that look at Facebook, see the accomplishments of others, which are never the whole story. And, and, and jealousy can result from that resentment. We see this in The Jews in Acts 17, Paul is preaching the gospel. People are believing the gospel. Guess what happens? Jews are starting to recognize, my goodness, the gospel is true. Jesus is the Christ. Well, guess how that makes the Jewish leaders feel in Thessalonica, Acts 17, 5? Jealous. Paul's getting a crowd. They're starting to listen to him. Jealousy feeds division. Jealousy feeds division. Look, look what the men of Israel say here in verse 43. And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah. We have ten shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. That essentially there's this sense of entitlement. We're entitled to him because he's our king. And there's, there's some truth in that, but you've got to be careful with this idea of entitlement, that I deserve this, I should receive this, I wasn't gift, given this. There's a, there's a, a behind it, this, 
this idea of entitlement that's being expressed, but more so in verse 43, there's an asserting of rights. Another characteristic oftentimes of division is this asserting of rights. I deserve this. I have right to this. this. This should be for me. And in this case, it's factually right. But that doesn't mean that it's not practically divisive. This is just where you've got to be careful. For instance, like, like in, in terms of gossip or talking about another person, there are some things that are true that don't need to be said or that it's just not wise to say. There are some rights that you might have, and you might actually have this right, but it might not be wise to express it. That's what you see here. Are they really ten compared to Judah being one? Yeah, that's factually correct. But look at what's happening here. They're asserting rights. A much wiser example is Nehemiah in chapter 5, verses 14 to 19. What Nehemiah does as a leader is he gives up rights that he has to encourage solidarity and unity. He has the rights to claim what he deserves as leader and as governor, which is quite a bit, but he gives that up for the good of the people. Look at it in Nehemiah 5, beginning in verse 14. Moreover, and the book of Nehemiah, you know, reads kind of like his journal. So it's like Nehemiah recording some, some things here that he did, and then it'll end with a prayer. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. But essentially, being a, a governor appointed by the Persian king gets you rights, <laughs> privileges. Nehemiah says, I didn't take any of those. Look what he goes on to say, verse 15. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them of their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even the servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. He gives you these little facts. I didn't acquire anything in this to benefit myself when he had every right to do so and probably every opportunity to do so. He gives up his rights for the good of the people. Verse 17. Moreover, now here's some facts. There were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. So a pretty large gathering. Now, what was prepared at my expense... For each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Opposite of these people. There, here's what a godly leader does for the good of the people. Paul does the exact same thing in Corinth. This divided church, Paul gives up his rights as an apostle. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 12. He gives up his rights so that there would be no hindrance to the gospel. He has rights and he doesn't claim them. You've got to be careful with this asserting of rights stuff. Is it really worth dividing people? Oftentimes it's not. Just be wise. 
Look, look what he says in verse 43. The men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king and in David. Also, we have more than you. Okay, yeah, ten is more than one. But you see what they're doing here? It's a discrediting comparison. They're discrediting the people of Judah, and they're comparing themselves to the people of Judah. We have more than you. You've got to be careful comparing yourself to other people in the context of division. This is, a, this is a, a weapon people use in trying to divide people. We have this right, we have this reason to do this, and here's why. Furthermore, look at the next sentence in verse 43. Why then did you despise us? That's pretty strong. Again, in reading through chapter 19, I've not seen any of that, but look at how they interpret it. I would just put this under the category in the anatomy of division of overreaction and exaggeration of words. This is not what happened. Look at how they describe it. You hated us. There's some manipulation with words. The, the reality is, among the people of God, for us in the church, conversations, even about things that you disagree about, should be more like a family discussion at a dinner table. It shouldn't be like a prosecuting attorney going after a defendant. That's what you have here. This is not how we should treat each other. This is how these brothers are treating each other. Why did you despise us? What an overreaction. I found this quote from Matthew Henry last week. I just thought it was really interesting. Here's what Matthew Henry says. The perverting of words is the subverting of peace. Essentially, they see hatred. Why did you despise us? Where if you read the context, there doesn't appear to be any hatred intended. Well, these people, the people, the ten tribes, are desiring position and recognition. Look at what else they go on to do and say. Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? Another thing that seems to be true. But what they're doing here is they're seeking recognition. You know, we deserve the credit. The king's come back. We should get the credit for it, not you. Why weren't we here? Why weren't we invited? But essentially, there's this, this one-upmanship that is taking place where they're claiming position and they're claiming privilege. And they're mad because they didn't get what they think they deserve. Again, factually true to some extent, but practically unhelpful and quite divisive. We don't want to desire position recognition. Just one of the things I think you see kind of behind the scenes here is suspicion of brothers. These things that the, the ten tribes say just indicate a suspicion of their brothers that at least on two accounts are not true. Some of the things they say are true. Some of the things they say, there's no evidence of it. But, but the danger here, I think, and, and, and one of the dangers for us to consider in, as we consider and examine division and some of the, the, the factors that contribute to division is suspicion is not helpful among the people of God. Just have a conversation. Just be clear. If you have a problem with a person, talk to them about it. There shouldn't be like this error of suspicion among us. Here's what one commentator said about that. When suspicion rules a person's heart, all the evidence just proves the other fellow guilty. If there's suspicion, 
Your, your default position is just guilt on that other person. Even, I mean, right, Elvis, we can't go on together with suspicious minds. It's not going to work. There, there is an inclination among some of us just to think the worst or just have a predisposition to think negatively. I don't know, what, I don't know if it's just me, but it seems to get worse as you get older. You know, you experience more negative stuff, it just becomes easier to think negative, which isn't helpful or godly or sanctifying. And we've got to be careful about that. This is what I think 1 Corinthians 13 means when it says, love believes all things. What I, what I think is meant by that phrase is the idea that love thinks the best of brothers. I mean, that would be a pretty cool group to be a part of. Rather than being suspicious of people thinking that they're trying to get the, the one up on you, love is always thinking the best of a person. This is just a better way to live. Cause you a lot less stress and a lot less corrupting bitterness as well. But essentially, one of the things I think you see at the root of so much of this, whether it's jealousy, desire for position, whether it's an asserting of rights, I think pride is at the heart of this. What I want, the way I want it, I should get it, I deserve it. Just a, a thinking highly of oneself and offended when things don't go the way I think they should go. I think that's what the, the ten tribes are doing here. Here's a, here's a quote from Richard Phillips that I found convicting about that. So it continues today. Inflamed pride leads to injured sentiments, responding with inflamed suspicions and unwarranted accusations. And pride can be a root of all of that. Again, I just remind you, Paul says of himself, I'm the least of the apostles. This group of men, specially commissioned and used by Jesus Christ, what's Paul's view of himself in light of them? I'm the least. Even though he wrote more books than any of the others, what's his view of himself? I'm the least. What's his view of himself in 1 Corinthians? I'm a servant. I'm low. Ephesians chapter 3, I'm the least of all saints. He's the chief of sinners. It's the opposite of pride. When you really think of yourself as least, you're not going to be real ticked off when somebody one-ups you. It's just, okay, well, I've got Jesus, and he saved me, and he's Lord, and that doesn't change my relationship with him. Praise God for that person. One of the other things, one of the other characteristics you see in this, this text is there is a plurality of dissenters that, that essentially disgruntled people love to congregate together, it appears. It's like they're a cabal, that the disgruntled form a mob mentality. That's just human nature, and you see it operative here in this passage. I would just say to us, we've just got to beware and be careful and be wise if and when people try to recruit us on their mission of division. Just be wise. Just be wise. There are things that you should divide over, but just be wise about it. Because here you have in Scripture this example, and all through Scripture, warnings about dividing with the people of God. Well, that's to the best of my ability some of the anatomy of what we see here that led to this division, but that's not all. Look at what happens at the end of verse 43. 
after these accusations and this misunderstanding and these distortions and this pride, but the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And then there's the end of the chapter, and the next section is about more division. This is not the right way to respond to false accusations, to misunderstanding, to distortions, to mischaracterizations. This is not the right way to respond, and I think that's the lesson here. This is how you don't respond when you are accused, and when other people are inciting division, here's how you should not respond, just essentially fighting fire with fire. It's just not helpful. It's just not godly. It's just not wise. That's hard not to. Look at what Peter says. Uh, First Peter written to Christians in the, the context of suffering. Look at what Peter says in First Peter 3, 8 to 11. Finally, all, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. That's what happens here. It's hard to to do that, especially when things are just factually wrong. But that's the Christian ideal. This is the ideal Paul carries into Corinth, 1 Corinthians 4.12. When reviled, we bless. That's what the Christian does when they're reviled. Revile me, respond with blessing. That's the Christian ideal. But essentially, this is a picture of abiding strife. And I think it's just, it's part of the Christian life. It's part of life in this world. It's part of life in the church. If it happened in the greatest kingdom in Israel's history, you know you're not immune to it. So you've just got to abide, I'm sorry, you've got to endure abiding strife. And I mean, you think about our world, I mean, doesn't political quarreling and dissent and animosity and infighting, isn't that just sadly part of our world and our history? Well, I mean, this text just goes to show you The designs of of the deceitful hearts of men just carry over generation to generation. But we have a warning here to the people of God. You know what's eventually going to happen to these ten tribes? And that is one of the reasons I think this passage is in here, and you see this distinction between Israel and the men of Judah. These ten tribes are going to break off. In fact, again, it's just so sad. You've got Saul, you've got David, you've got Solomon, then under Solomon's son Rehoboam, the divided kingdom. And they go, to, they go to doom. They're doomed because of their sin and their godless leaders. And it's sad and it's tragic. But right here you're seeing the seeds of it in the restoration of David. You're seeing essentially foreshadowing of what's going to happen. And it's tragic. And it always threatens to divide us. Well, a couple of final points of application for us. We need to strive against strife. And there's so much scripture here that could encourage us. Let me just show you one, Proverbs 17, 14. Proverbs 17, 14, some proverbial wisdom to encourage us to, to fight against strife. 
to be a peacemaker. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Right? Have you experienced this analogy? You're entering into a conversation, maybe with your spouse, and man, things are just tense. Things are starting to get heated. It's kind of like a dam, and there's just a little bit of water starting to break through, and you know what's coming, right? You know what's coming. So it might, it might be a good time to quit right now, right? Maybe I should just walk away or shut my mouth um, because the beginning of strife is like the letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Just a, just a, why are there so many proverbs about avoiding strife? Why is there so much in the Psalms about guarding our mouth? Well, because sinners need to learn these lessons. And strife and division is a real challenge for us, obviously. History and church history and biblical history would all attest to that. So we strive against strife, and finally we strive for unity. Let me give you three ways. Actually, it's four. Four ways to strive for unity. These are quick, so don't go to sleep. What unifies us as the people of God? Well, the Scripture, as we've seen over and over again, the Scripture unifies us. And, and, and we're, not always, we're not ever going to agree, all of us, on how to interpret Scripture or, you know, what all these passages mean. But we better agree that it's the Word of God and that it's the authority. That's unifying. That's unifying. We believe the same things about the most important book. And it's the book that unifies us. It's what God says that defines us. And that unifies us. So you should stay in the Word. You should be shaped by the Word and be motivated by the Word. And you should be convicted to divide where God's Word calls you to divide. There's a, there's a good source of wisdom and direction when thinking about division. Well, is this something God's Word is pressing me to do? Or is it something my heart or my desires or my offendedness is pressing me to do? So the Scripture is this great unifying source for Christians and for the church. And you read this book, like the text tonight, you see warning after warning about division among God's people. This is a foreshadowing warning that heralds the doom of the ten tribes. God is done with them, read Amos. Done. They're over. They're gone from history. And here's the, here's the seeds of it. It's tragic. The Scripture is the unifying source. Secondly, the Gospel is the unifying message. When, whenever Paul addresses the Corinthians in their division, chapter 1, you know how he goes at their division? He's, he asks them the question, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? This great unifying source of Christ and the gospel, he's not divided. <laughs> Why would you be divided? This is, a, this is our great unifying message. This is, ultimate, this is the most important message that defines us and brings us together. I mean, we, we have a lot of different opinions. We have a lot of different ideas. We have a lot of the different thoughts. We have a lot of different philosophies, a lot of different beliefs. But do we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, sent by God to die for our sins, raised again from the dead, Lord over all? Died on the cross for our sins, raised from the dead. Here's the great unifying message of Christians. So we have a unifying message which is connected to our mission. We have a unifying mission. And this is, this is the thing that I really can't get with division among Christians and in churches. 
I mean, churches essentially made up of people that essentially believe the same things. I mean, we have the most important mission of all. You understand that? I believe the church is the most important institution in history. And I believe the church has the most important mission in history to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, shouldn't that unify us? I mean, my goodness, if you can't strive together, together, side by side for faith in the gospel, what in the heck is wrong? If that mission to go to other people, to bring them the message that saved your soul, can't get you to work with people that you disagree about with oftentimes things that whatever are dust in the wind, the mission of the church is our unifying purpose, and it's the most important mission. And finally, it's the king that unifies us. It's the king, Jesus. He's the one who unifies us. He's, why are they having this argument in this chapter? Because of the king, David, the anointed one of God. They all recognize he's God's man. Well, you understand the word Christ means anointed one. Jesus Christ is the anointed one of God. He's the Christ. He's the king. He's the ultimate unifier of the church. Let's pray in his name. Lord, we just pray you would give us wisdom, that we'd learn from this passage in anatomy of division, that we'd be wise to counteract it in our own hearts and lives and minds. And God, that we would be very careful about what we divide with brothers about. God, that we'd be shaped and guided by your word, that Lord, we'd be informed and convicted by love, the great preeminent command to love one another. And God, that that would direct us and God, we'd be warned by all that we see in this passage, the, the dangers of pride and all of its horrible manifestations. And God, that you'd protect our church from division, that you'd keep us unified for the gospel, that God, we would be working side by side for faith in the gospel, that we have this great desire to see people saved, to believe in Jesus and turn from their sin and have their eternally changed by Christ. And that would unify us. We have this great book of truth, your word, and it would unify us. And God, we have the person of Jesus Christ and his work, and we'd bow before him as king, and we'd submit to him as Lord, and we'd do what you say, forgiving one another as he has forgiven us. So God, I just pray you'd protect us from division. Help us not to be like the Corinthians or the Galatians that were biting and devouring one another. Help us, God, rather to love one another. And God, we just pray that others would know we're your disciples by the way we love one another. And it would have a powerful effect on those around us and on our community. So God, give us grace and give us help in Jesus' name. Amen.